take your copy of God's Word and let's open it together to the Gospel of John. And we're in John chapter 8, starting in verse 48. This morning, we're finally finishing up this great passage of God's Word. There are 59 verses. This is a very long and deep chapter. There's a reason why we have taken our time. I didn't want it to be like that guy who went to church and then halfway through the sermon, he got up to leave. And so his wife stopped him and said, where are you going? He said, I'm going to get a haircut. And she said, why didn't you get a haircut before you came to church? And he said, well, when I got here, I didn't need one. Well, that's what would happen if I tried to preach all of this in John chapter 8 in just one sitting. But John chapter 8, we'll begin in a moment there in verse 48. There are many important questions that we all have to wrestle with in life. For example, what is my purpose in life? Why am I here? How do I determine what's right and wrong? What's wrong with this world? What is the solution? Is there any hope? Is my life having an impact? Am I reaching my potential? What will my legacy be? You know, all of these are good questions. And yet, in light of eternity, I believe the greatest question of them all is simply, who is Jesus? Because how we respond to that question will shape how we live our lives, and it will also determine our destiny. We remember that time when Jesus was in the upper room with his disciples, and he asked them that great question, who do men say that I am? And they began to repeat to him some of the things they had heard other people say. Well, some people say that you are John the Baptist. Some people say you're Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But then Jesus said to them, and who do you say that I am? It all comes down to that question. How do you answer that question? Who is Jesus? Well, in our passage this morning, Jesus is going to answer that question for himself. And he gives the most direct answer possible when in verse 58, he refers to himself as I am. Now, we'll talk about what that means when we get to verse 58 later on. But if Jesus really is, I am. You know what that means? That means that he is greater than any philosopher who ever spoke. If Jesus is, I am, that means he's greater than any teacher who ever taught. He's greater than any prophet who ever preached. Jesus is is greater. And we're going to see in these last few verses of John chapter 8 several reasons why that is so. First of all, Jesus is greater because he set aside his glory. Jesus is greater because he set aside his glory. Look at verse 48. Then the Jews answered and said to him, do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon. 
And the verses before, Jesus had told them, if God were your father, if Abraham were your father, you would love me. You would believe me. You would accept me. And this is how they respond. I want you to understand that when they called Jesus a Samaritan, they knew that he was not literally a Samaritan. It's that they hated the Samaritan so much that they were using that word, listen, as an ethnic slur. They called him a Samaritan, and then, of course, he performed all these miracles, but they don't know how he did it. So then they said he was possessed by a demon. It's like they can't answer Jesus's arguments, so now they're just insulting him. They're just attacking him, and this is really, really ugly stuff. How many of you have ever been insulted? I think everybody has, right? Think for a moment about the greatest insult anyone ever hurled at you. Think for just a moment about the meanest, nastiest attack that was ever made against you. That, my friend, does not compare to what Jesus endured for you. So when Jesus was insulted, how did he respond? Look at verse 49. Jesus answered, I do not have a demon but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. And I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Notice Jesus did not even bother to respond to the name-calling. Didn't even justify it. Jesus simply says, I'm honoring my Father. Guess what? Demon-possessed people don't do that. Demon-possessed people don't do everything that they can, everything that they say, and everything that they do to glorify or to honor God. Jesus said, I don't have to defend myself. I don't have to seek my own glory. I didn't come to seek my glory, but the glory of him who sent me. So I'm just going to leave this in his hands and let him judge. Now, when we read how Jesus responded to their attacks, to their insults, we immediately think of what Peter said about Jesus in 1 Peter 2.23, how when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Or when he was insulted, he did not insult them back. We can't be certain, but it's certainly possible that Peter had this conversation in mind in part, when he, this conversation in John chapter 8, when he wrote those words. But notice what Jesus said, I do not seek my own glory. You know what some of them were saying? Some of them were saying, Jesus, you're what we call a glory hound. Someone could have said, well, Jesus, you're making all of these great big claims about yourself because you want honor for yourself and you want glory for yourself. And that would have been true if they were talking to anybody but Jesus. But skip down to verse 54. Notice what Jesus said. Jesus answered, if I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my father who honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. Yet you have not known him, but I know him. And if I say I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you, but I do know him and keep his word. Notice again, Jesus didn't seek honor for himself. And by the way, if Jesus did not seek honor for himself, neither should we seek honor 
for ourselves. But isn't it interesting? Here is the one man who was worthy of more honor and more glory than anyone else. And yet, he did not seek honor or glory for himself. You realize Jesus didn't claim to be the bread of life, didn't claim to be the light of the world in order to say, hey, everybody, look at me. Ain't I great? No, he made these claims and other claims about himself, first of all, because they're true. He said, if I say I do not know him, then I am a liar like you. But he made these statements about himself so that they might be saved by believing in his name. And every time, by the way, in the Gospel of John, when we see Jesus making all of these incredible, amazing statements by himself, it is never for the purpose of glorifying himself. It's always for the purpose of saving sinners like us. Jesus said, I am the door so that we might come in and be saved. He said, I am the good shepherd because he laid down his life for us. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life because we were lost and confused and spiritually dead. But he never said these things to glorify himself. And it's because he did not seek honor or glory for himself that God honored him and glorified him. Philippians 2 says, because Jesus lowered himself, because he did not honor himself, therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And part of what makes Jesus greater is that he was willing to set aside his glory. He did not seek his own glory, but he came and set aside his glory to save a lost and a dying world. We also see in this that Jesus is greater because he frees us from the power of death. He frees us from the power of death. Look at verse 51. Most assuredly I say to you read the rest of that with me if anyone keeps my word he shall never see death now this is without a doubt one of the most beautiful and precious promises that we have in all of the Word of God and notice it begins most assuredly in the Greek it literally says Amen, amen, I say to you. Now, we understand that whenever Jesus spoke, every word he said was full of meaning. But when Jesus got ready to say something that was especially important, something that was of vital uh, significance, of vital importance, he would oftentimes begin by saying, Amen, amen, I say to you. To you who just insulted me. To you who just called me an ethnic slur. To you who a few verses earlier insulted my mother. To you who say that I am demon possessed. Jesus is saying to them, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. So isn't it amazing that even at this point, as they are insulting him and attacking him, even then, Jesus loves them and he's reaching out to them, and he is offering them life. 
And this is why Jesus came, so that the power of death would be destroyed. And look closely at that verse. Notice, to whom does this promise apply? He said, to the one who keeps my word. Remember, this word of Jesus, the word about Jesus, is the word of himself, what he said about himself, the claims that he made. That includes his claim that he would be lifted up on the cross. That includes his claim that he would die and on the third day rise again. And when Jesus said, whoever keeps my word, he is assuming, by the way, that the true believer will keep his word. He's assuming that this person who's truly been saved will continue to cling to Jesus as his or her only hope. But the one who keeps my word, he said, will never see death. You know, in the original language, it seems to me to be worded even more strongly. When you look at the Greek, the most literal translation would be, he will never, not ever, see death forever. Obviously, that's a really bold statement. And I know what some people will say, but wait a second, Pastor Howard, Christians die all the time. In fact, the death rate among believers is the same as the death rate among non-believers. 100% of people die. And yes, that is true. I'm reminded about the, the man who was having all sorts of health problems, and he went and had all of these tests to try to figure out what was wrong. And finally, he and his wife went to the doctor's office to get the results. When he got there, the doctor said to the wife, he said, I'm going to need to speak to you in private. And the husband left the room, and the doctor said to his wife, listen, your husband's health is very, very fragile. He could have a heart attack at any moment. And so here's what you need to do. You need to create for him a stress-free home, and you need to meet all of his needs and make sure you never complain about anything he says or does and keep him as comfortable as possible because otherwise uh, he might drop dead of a heart attack at any point. They were on their way home, and the, wife turned, or the husband asked his wife, he said, um, Honey, what did that doctor say to you in private? And the wife said, The doctor said, You're going to die. Well, yes, we understand that even believers die. And someone will ask the question, how can Jesus say that the one who keeps his word will never see death? Obviously, he's not talking about our physical bodies. He's not saying that these bodies do not die. We live in a world that is under the curse of sin, and part of that curse is death. We die physically. No, what Jesus is saying is that for the child of God, death takes on new meaning. When we get to John chapter 11, we're going to see that Jesus was very hesitant to even use the word death to describe what happened to Lazarus. In fact, he only used the word death when his disciples continued to not understand what he was saying. But there was something about that word death that Jesus did not want to use it because he knew that that word doesn't even begin to describe what happens when a child of God passes from this life into eternity. 
You see, for the believer, all death can do is usher us into the presence of God. Your body may die, but Christian brother, Christian sister, you don't die. And if we really believe this, I mean really believe it, this will impact how we live. We're not going to live our lives as if this is all there is, and the point of life is to get all we can while we can. If we really believe this, we will not fear death. Hebrews 2 says that Jesus took on death to destroy the one who held the power of death to free those in bondage to the fear of death. You realize that's how most people around us are living their lives. Though they never reveal it, though they never actually say it, they live their lives in bondage, the Bible says, to the fear of death. But for the child of God, there is nothing to fear. One day, my heart will stop beating. One day, my lungs will stop breathing. One day, my body will stop moving. And one day, they'll put me in the ground and someone will sign a death certificate saying that Howard Harden died. And when that happens, don't you believe it. Don't you believe it. Because in that moment, I'll be more alive than ever before. This is why Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.8, he said we are well pleased to be absent from the body and present with the Lord. We forget about that well-pleased part, don't we? This is why he said to the Philippians, to live is Christ and to die is what? It's gained. Jesus is greater because he died and rose again and he defeated death and he frees us from the power of death. And one day, even physical itself will surrender when Jesus comes again and these bodies are raised from the dead. The reason why Jesus can make such a promise to us is because of this final point that I want you to see. Jesus is greater because he is eternally God. He is eternally God. Look at verse 52. Then the Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham is dead and the prophets, and you say, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who is dead, and the prophets are dead? Who do you make yourself out to be? Notice how they, respond, how they responded to that beautiful promise that Jesus made them in verse 51. Let's just put aside for a moment the fact that they called Jesus demon-possessed again for the second time in this passage the actual question that they asked here guess what it's a good question in fact this is the right question this is the question that they were supposed to ask are you greater than abraham as i said last sunday they believed that abraham was the greatest man to ever walk on the face of the earth and yet abraham died and then they began to think about all of those prophets who had faithfully preached the word of God over the years and all of those prophets who had died. But Jesus, you claim that the one who keeps your word will never taste death. So again, 
are you greater than Abraham? This would be like asking an artist, are you greater than Van Gogh? This would be like asking a musician, are you greater than Mozart? They asked him, are you greater than Abraham? And they thought they had Jesus trapped because they thought there's no way he'll answer that question by saying yes. But look at what he says in verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. Abraham looked forward to me. He saw me. He rejoiced in me. Now, the question we have to ask is the same question they were asking. In what way did Abraham rejoice upon seeing Jesus? And of course, commentators and Bible scholars go back and forth and they debate, okay, how much did Abraham know about Jesus? But can I just remind you of one thing? The Bible says in Galatians 3 verse 8 that the gospel was preached to Abraham. We can argue how much Abraham knew, but the gospel was preached to him. He may not have known the name of Jesus, but he knew about the promise. He knew about the promise of Genesis 3 that God would send a Savior, that the seed of the woman would come and crush the serpent's head. He knew that this Savior would somehow come from this nation of which he would be the father God told him to go to Mount Moriah and sacrifice his son Isaac. And there, Abraham discovered that he didn't have to because at just the right time, God provided a substitute to die in his place. Do you realize it was on that exact same mount, which later came to be known by a different name. It later came to be known as Golgotha. On that very same spot, Jesus became our substitute sacrifice. And Abraham knew that he didn't have to sacrifice his son because guess what? God gave his only begotten son for us. And we can debate how much Abraham knew about Jesus, but according to Jesus, Abraham looked forward in time and just knowing that one day this Savior would come, it caused his heart to rejoice and he was glad. Abraham believed in the promise God made. And now we look back and we believe in the promise God kept. We're saved the same way Abraham was saved. But he looked forward and he looked to Jesus. The Bible says he was glad. Look at verse 57. Then the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? You know what I think? I think at this point they were so shocked at what Jesus said. You could have just knocked them over with your pinky finger if you wanted to. You mean to tell me that Abraham saw you and rejoiced? That was 2,500 years ago. Jesus, you're not even 50 years old. How did Abraham see you? Or how did you see Abraham? How did he rejoice in you? Now, Jesus answers them and he gives them what is probably the boldest statement he made in all of the Gospels, and I believe the boldest statement ever a man made in all of human history. And all of this time as we read through this chapter, you can feel the heat and the intensity just building and building and building. 
And all of this time, they don't realize it, but Jesus has been guiding them. He's been leading them to this moment, this point in the conversation where Jesus will make this statement in verse 58. This is where it has all been going the whole time. Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. No one can read that statement and claim that Jesus never claimed to be God. I want you to notice what Jesus did not say. He did not say, before Abraham was, I was. He did not say, before Abraham was, I existed as if Jesus was some separate created being who just happened to be created before Abraham. Now, that's what Jehovah Witnesses believe, but that's not what Jesus said. He said before Abraham was, I am He said that because you remember in Exodus chapter 3 when God said to Moses, I want you to go to Egypt and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And Moses said, oh God, when I go to them and they ask me, what is the name of this God who has sent you? What will I say? And God said, I am that I am. Tell them the I am has sent you. When God called himself, I am, that simply means that he's self-existent. You see, we exist because we have a beginning. We exist because we were created. God has no beginning. No one created God. He simply is. So when God calls himself the I am, that just refers to the fact that he is timeless. That refers to the fact that God is eternal I am refers to the fact that he always has been and always will be God. And there are dozens of different names for God that are used in the Bible to describe him. But did you know this one name stands out among them all? This one name is the name that is used for God, get this, 7,000 times in the Bible. And God said to Moses, this is my name forever to all generations. I am. And so we get to John chapter 8, and here is Jesus. And he's talking about himself. And he says, before Abraham was, I am. We see what he's doing. He's taking that Name, that sacred name, that holy name. And he's applying it to himself. And he's saying that he is the I am, that God himself has come to them in human flesh. Now, I want you to notice how they respond to this in verse 59. Then they took up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself. And went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. What a tragedy to think that 
Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, came from heaven to earth to save them. And this is how they responded. And at the beginning of chapter 8, Jesus said, whoever is without sin, let him first cast a stone. We get to the end of chapter 8, and what are they doing? They're looking for stones to stone him, even though they do have sin. According to Leviticus, this is what you were supposed to do if someone blasphemed. But the fact that they're looking for stones, the fact that they think they're going to stone Jesus to death in that moment, you know what that tells us? That tells us they understood exactly what Jesus was saying. If there had been some kind of misunderstanding, if they merely thought that Jesus claimed to be God, but he didn't really, don't you think that Jesus would have, should have corrected them? Wouldn't Jesus have said, now, wait a second, I never claimed to be God. Jesus never corrected their misunderstanding because there was no misunderstanding to correct. Now, if what Jesus is saying is true, if he is the I am, this has some tremendous implications for our lives. I think about something that happened recently, you're all aware, just a few months ago, the United Kingdom officially crowned King Charles, the new King of England. Did any of you follow that? Did any of you watch the coronation? Three, good. <laughs> Three days of festivities. Dignitaries came from all over the world. It all culminated in this ceremony in, in Westminster Abbey. I read a report that the British government spent, brace yourself, $100 million on the coronation of King Charles. And to think, all of this to crown someone king who doesn't even reign over them. All of this to crown someone king who is king in name only, who is merely symbolic. All of this to crown someone king who has no practical power over their lives. They have a prime minister for that. They have a parliament for that. But all of this to crown someone king who does not reign. I tell you this because there are a lot of people who would try to claim Jesus as their king but would not have him reign over them. And ladies and gentlemen, if Jesus really is who he claims to be in John chapter 8, if he really is the I am, the living God who came from heaven to earth, who died and who rose again, listen, he deserves to be more than a figurehead king in your life. If he is the I am, he has the right to rule over us. If he is the I am, he deserves our worship. If he is the I am, that means knowing him and loving him ought to be the highest priority of our lives. If Jesus is the I am, that means every word he said is true and he has the final word in all of life and we should base our lives on it. If he is the I am, that means he's the only hope we have. 
in this life, in death, for eternity, if he is the I am, that means he deserves to be king and Lord of our lives today. Would you join me for a moment as we pray? Oh God, how we thank you for what we've seen and what we've read in your word this morning. And we see that Jesus made claims about himself that no, no one else ever made and no one else could make because only Jesus was who he claimed to be and he did what he said he would do. And he died for our sins and he backed it all up when he rose again on the third day proving that yes, indeed, he is the I am. And therefore... It is only fitting and it is only appropriate that we would crown him as king of our lives today. And so, Father, would you help us to see this morning if there is any area of our lives in which we are not conceding to him, that we are not allowing him to, to fully have dominion, if we are resisting that. Father, would you help us to see if there's an area of our lives that we need to surrender to him afresh and anew. God, I pray for the one who might be here today who, who has never taken that step of confessing Jesus Christ as Lord of their lives. And God, how I pray that for them this would be that moment, this would be that day. We remember what Jesus said earlier in this chapter, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. We pray that wouldn't be said of anybody here today. We thank you, O oh God, that your word says that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. God, if there's even one who in these next moments, these next moments needs to call upon the name of the Lord, oh, how we pray this would be their day of salvation. Have your way, O oh God. We pray in Jesus' name.